A furious autumn series has drawn to a close, and from an English perspective, the knives are well and truly out after a drubbing South Africa at HQ on Saturday. Joining me, Nick Kane, and Brendan Gallagher to discuss Eddie Jones's current footing, as well as looking back on his role at the Red Roses during the World Cup, as former England lock and Red Roses forwards coach Lewis Deacon. Brendan and Nico are back with me. No Chewy again this week, who is swamped, so he tells me. We are with former England lock and current Red Roses forward coach, Lewis Deacon. How are you, Lewis? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. And you got back from New Zealand three and a half weeks ago now. I've kind of lost track of time. Something like that. I have as well, yeah. Yeah, we've just been been spending the last couple of weeks decompressing. Obviously, after a long tournament, we was in camp from July onwards. So, spending a lot of time in camp following a a weekly schedule as such. And... um, yeah, try and get back to a bit of normality, normal life, which is quite difficult when you've been in camp for such a long time. What does decompressing look like for you? Is that putting your feet up, reflecting? Yeah, a bit of reflecting, probably trying not to, obviously after the result, uh, try and not think about rugby too much if you can. Um, try and spend a bit of time with friends, family, um, and just reconnect with people really, because like I say, you're in that bubble and you, it's not not really like a normal situation from a day-to-day life type thing so yeah the reconnection and certainly spending time with the family is really important so that's that's what we've we've all been doing the tour bubble is something that's spoken about quite a lot nowadays and the effects of that particularly in a mid-pandemic or now we could say post-pandemic era how is that dynamic different being a coach rather than a player obviously a player you're I guess there's a more natural integration in the big squad of 35 or however many are going. I guess a coach, there's very much a coaching staff, but you do have that coach-player separation to a point. Yeah, and, and to be fair, as a coach, your workload's completely different to being a player. So we put quite a big emphasis on the players. When they had downtime, they had proper downtime. They're able to get away and out of camp and being in a in a city, Auckland, they're able to do that on a, on a regular basis. Being a coach... You're a bit more engrossed in the the plannings, you know, stuff. So you don't get quite as much t- downtime. But yeah, we did stuff as a team as well. Like the, the down days, we, we tried to put a massive emphasis on like that team, coaches, players, staff, all just all sort of um, spending time with each other, which is really important too. We will touch upon that World Cup final, particularly towards the end of the episode. I want to say, first of all, massive congratulations for making it to that final. We will get to that later. We've got so much to get through. The first is a slightly bleak note, um, and that was that on Saturday, some very sad news hit the rugby world. I believe it was actually during the Wales-Australia game that the news came out, and that was that Scotland rugby great Doddy Weir passed away six years after being diagnosed with motor neurone disease. Brendan, did you know Doddy? Yes, I did. I did a bit. In fact, quite well. He was 99, uh, 95 World Cup. I spent three weeks up there in Pretoria and Scotland were at the Holiday Inn most of the time. And and that can be a bit awkward sometimes. You're staying with the teams. It either works or it doesn't. But when you've got a guy like Doddy, it works because he will pull over or do pull over for a cup of coffee. Um, he makes you welcome for a beer after the game in, in the hotel bar. So got to know him well there. 97 Lions, of course, before he sadly got sort of um, invalided off the tour with a bit of foul play by Marius Bosman from Pumalanga Humours. And he never changed. Just to go think about, Doddy, what you saw was always what, you know, what he was. That that was the genuine article. And that's what came through 
when he was cut down by this cruel illness, and it and it really is an absolute bastard, you know, and um, motor neuron disease. Uh, but it didn't change him, you know. He, he was still the same Doddy, and that meant that people could still interact with him properly. There's no awkwardness. Uh, he was going to give what he had left of his life to raising awareness, raising money, raising spirits. To be honest, uh, what a great man and. Um, universally loved and admired i think you would have gauged that from wherever you were at the weekend rugby wise twicken and when the news came through various clubs all over the place and you know, you know the, the the tributes from the great and good were were extraordinary really and, and, and obviously very heartfelt and uh, we're going to miss him but the main thing i think what he would say is that you know he wants the work to continue that that's why he flogged himself in the last five years, when he must have some days just not wanted to even roll out of bed. Um, he flogged himself to, to raise awareness, and I think a lot of people are going to continue that good work. And for those that don't know, that work is primarily in the form of the My Name's Doddy Foundation. Yeah, which yeah has raised has raised $8 million, $8 million towards research into finding a cure for motor neuron disease. Nick, Scott Hastings used, Scott Hastings, sorry, used the word trailblazer to describe Doddy where I think that's the right word, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I really sort of got to know him uh, best on that 97 Lions tour, like Brendan. He was an irrepressible character with a great sense of humour and seemed to be able to connect with almost everybody. Uh, in fact, with everybody. On the pitch, I think that, you know, he, he was a trailblazer in the sense that he was a new age lock in terms of he had huge stamina and uh, mobility, as well as being obviously a very, very good line-out forward. So, uh, yeah, and the, the 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 way that he rose to the challenge of what's, a, as Brendan said, a horrendous disease and pushed through it to uh, raise the amount of money that he did was testament to his character. Lewis, the start of your career just about overlapped with the end of Doddy's. Did you ever play against him? Did you ever take the field against him? I think I, I think I probably did, yeah, uh, in his Newcastle days. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, absolute legend of a, a person, full of life, great character. And you see that with his, with his dress sense. Um, <laughs> yeah, just, just an incredible person all around. You know, really inspiring the way he dealt with that horrendous disease and you know, all the work he did with it, with his charity. I think... There was one lovely story on Twitter, by the way, Ollie. I don't know if you saw it. Apparently, at some stage of his career, between retiring and whatever, he was involved installing central heating systems, or at least on the sales side. And he, he, this is up in the borders, and he, he turns up at this house. And, of course, the guy recognised him instantly. Six foot seven, crawls his way out of the car. And introductions made. And he assumed this was going to be a little business meeting or sales pitch. And Doddy had seen one of these trampolines that kids use with the cage in the middle of the garden. He, he just said, right, you know, nothing happens until I've had half an hour on the trampoline. They so had six foot seven Doddy on the trampoline with the kids before they talked about selling the, um, the central heating installation. I hadn't seen that. No, that's great, though. Unfortunately, we've, you know, had the misfortune of paying tribute to a lot of great names that the rugby world has lost this year and i think what sets doddy apart from that list of names is that he has a concrete legacy such as the doddy weir the my name's but doddy foundation sorry and we can be absolutely sure that his legacy will live on in that foundation and let's hope that uh 
with the likes of Ed Slater's very sad diagnosis with motor neurone disease that research continues into finding a cure. Okay, let's have a look at the autumn series and particularly England versus South Africa. Obviously, pretty bleak viewing itself from an England perspective. I want to go around, first of all, and simply put the questions to the floor, Jones in or out. Where are you starting? <laughs> <laughs> I'll come to Nick. I feel like you've just volunteered yourself. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I, I I've been saying out actually since Yokohama, and um, I've repeated it. It's no good repeating it every time you write anything, but I've repeated it every year since. I think that Eddie's one of those coaches. I do think he's a a very good coach, but I don't think he's a great selector, and I also think he's missed a massive trick in this uh, second four-year term. He had to start his rebuild immediately after, in the year after the World Cup final, and he didn't. He sat on he sat on the team that he got for another year, and then he only started the process of, the, uh, of, of change the following year. So he wasted a year, effectively, and that's proved to be crucial in many ways. I think he's also, when I look back at his, his record as a coach, there's one serious Achilles heel there and that is and there is an exception because what Steve Borthwick did with Japan along with Mark Del Dalmasso was create a really competitive small pack that had great technique but overall Eddie's Achilles heel is he does not recognize the importance of having scrummaging props. If you've got a choice of scrummaging props or footballing props, and hopefully you've got a combination of the two, you must go for the scrummaging props. And uh, he he's never done that. You know, his record with Australia was, you know, when they lost the 2003 World Cup final, there was massive controversy over the way in which the referee refereed the scrums, almost denying England the absolutely massive advantage they had in that area. Uh, we saw him bring an Australian side to Twickenham, which was destroyed on that occasion by Andrew Sheridan, two, two props off the field, through getting injured, uh, scrummaging. Uh, we saw a 20-stone England prop lifted off his feet on Saturday. Tight head Will Stewart, Kitsoff got right under him and forklifted him out of the scrum. I think that England need a change. I think that they need a new injection. And 11 months from the World Cup, it's not even a year, but I would still definitely make that change. And he, you know, I mean, those areas have got to be addressed. Otherwise, England England won't be winning anything. Is anyone playing devil's advocate to that? To Lewis or Brendan, do either of you believe Jones should stick around? No, I don't. Uh, like Nick, ideally, he should have gone a bit earlier than this because it is leaving it a bit late. But I see a very stale, underperforming side. Eddie's been there seven years now. A lot of rugby, a lot of churn amongst some pretty mediocre coaches, in my opinion, in the background. One or two good ones. Um, it doesn't feel right. The players don't look inspired. They don't look quite on the same page. And if it is going to happen, it probably needs to happen in the next week or so because you need somebody in place for the Six Nations. So I think we have got to that point. I haven't got any confidence whatsoever that the RFU will see it that way. Uh, but I think realistically, that's where we are. Lewis, what's your take? The question would be who who would come in if there were to make a change. It's 11 months to go. 
and it needs to be someone who's going to have a big impact straight straight away. Yeah, I don't think they'll they will make the change a change at this point. Probably still feel that there's time to turn it around, like South Africa did last World Cup. You know, they were probably in a a bit of turmoil last World Cup, not playing particularly well, and they 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 turned it around. But they had they had a, an area of the game that they could go to, and that was around that set piece, and that's where England were until sort of like Six Nations last year, a very strong set piece, and it's, it seems to have gone away from them certain parts of the game that they were like was their super strengths. So they're they're the sort of areas that they need to get that back pretty quickly, and Six Nations obviously is the time to do it. Lewis, you mentioned a replacement. Say the RFU do make that decision. For you, who comes in? I, th- I think at the moment, the, the job that Steve's done with Leicester, I don't think you can look too far away from, from him. But there's obviously other candidates in there as well, like <laughs> Robinson and those guys. Maybe Cockazoo's in there at the moment. You know, why was Cockers brought in at the f- in the first place? Was that was that for him to eventually take over or not? So, um, you know, my money would be on Steve, Steve taking the job and moving it forward. When I was reading up on what people have been saying about Eddie Jones, people compared Scott Robertson being drafted in, and Brendan, I'll come to you about this, to Brendan McCullum being drafted in for the England cricket setup and it being that sort of a watershed moment. It's a risk, but obviously, you know, anything they do now is also going to be a bit of a gamble. Do you see a little bit of a parallel there, bringing someone who's a little bit innovative, maybe Ronan O'Gara with him in in an ideal world and really just parachute England towards a different way of playing? In one way, that's not a bad parallel at all. Certainly the way he had a you know, pretty instant compact um, uh, impression down at uh, Canterbury. The trouble with him, he after the next World Cup, he will definitely get a four-year contract with one of the big teams. So is he, is a, is a coach like that, going to risk like a nine-month sort of, you know, save our souls, Hail Mary pass? Is he going to re- you know, risk his reputation on the pretty slim chance that he can bring, you know, really pull that round and get a World Cup winning team. I mean, possibly. I don't know, know him, you know, don't know him well enough, but it's a pretty big risk for somebody to come in at that stage if you have plans to be one of the big names after the next World Cup. But he has said that he wants to win two World Cups with a different yeah. a different nation on each. Seems like the perfect way to come in just for 10 months, stay for that World Cup and then head off to I the All Blacks. You could, you could do it like that. It's a bit of a free pass, isn't it? You know, you, you get a, a sort of free go almost. But yeah. I'm not sure that I'm not sure that necessarily works in practice. But, um, you know, if he's a risk taker, and I think he is, he, he might well fancy it. But, you know, whether the RPU would offer it to him, I'm really not sure at this stage. I think What's like, I think, I think Steve Borthwick is the, is the front runner. Yeah. And I, I think Rog would very much like to be involved. What's the uh, problem with uh, somebody like Robertson being given a uh, a two year deal now? Uh, for example, I, I think he'd probably jump at that. Um, I think that uh, Joe Schmidt's probably being lined up by New Zealand at the moment. He's uh, he's riding shotgun uh, to Foster, so um, I, I certainly wouldn't overlook Robertson. I agree that Steve Borthwick has got. He's got more uh, top end experience, and the top end experience he's got, his uh, his credentials are obviously pretty good as a consequence of it. Although he's finding out this season that um, you know, obviously at club level, uh, it's not always an automatic thing that you're on repeat. Uh, I, I dare say that Leicester will 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 make the playoffs. 
in what's a denuded premiership. But um, I, I think that what is clear is that there are a lot of very good candidates. But Lewis's point about, you know, who would be available immediately is obviously the critical, you know, the critical question. I think so. another one that we had was, was, could any of those work together? Because I think what Steve will bring is obviously a general strategy around how they want to play if he's the head man. But I think the key is probably to unlock some of the talent that's in that back line or, or the, the younger guys that are coming through. I, I think at the moment, that's not quite been able to be done, um, whether that's because of the coaching around it or the personnel that are involved. But they probably need to find an attack coach that can unlock the quality, Marcus Smiths and some of the young outstanding wingers that are coming through into the game and how they can get them into the game alongside a, a, a set piece that's usually, you know, very good. And that's what the English game has always been built around or on. Yeah. I I agree. It has been in the past, Lewis. But I, you know, I mean, I think that the signs at the moment are around the set piece are not good at all. And I I actually think it's been coming for a while too. I think that that beating that they got on uh, on on Saturday was has been coming down the track for a while. There, you know, I mean, just technically, which obviously you, you know, is is your area. You know a great deal about, but they're soft hitting. You know they're 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 not they're not really contesting at the scrum. They're not going for you know for broke at the scrum at all. There's something wrong with constantly playing for penalties and not being able to take the weight and to apply the weight uh, when you have to. They're in defensive mode as a scrummaging unit constantly. There were 15 scrums uh, in that game, and there probably usually aren't that number. And uh, it gave South Africa a, an opportunity to show just how really, frankly, poor the England scrum cur currently is. And I, I think that I, when you look at it, you know, after what happened in Yokohama, you know, they would the, that that was a scrummaging disaster. And in the three years since, I don't think they've made any advances scrum-wise at all. And I, I sort of think, well, if you had that sort of result in a final and you pinpointed, you could see a particular area, you would move heaven and earth. You would go around, you would look at players in the championship, you'd look right across the the, the spectrum of, uh, of the English game, semi-pro, pro, and so on, to see whether you could spot talent coming through. I don't think that's been done. I know they kept Genge to defuse the so-called bomb squad, even though they ended up bringing Genge on at about 40 minutes before the bomb squad was anywhere near. But it also seems mad to me that they picked exactly the same front row in 2022 that they did in 2019. That would suggest to me, Nick, that you mentioned the concept of a scrummaging prop. Jones doesn't have faith in any of the young props coming through as scrummaging props. Mm. Well, that, 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 that may be true. That may be true. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I certainly think that there are props who are strong scrummagers who are not getting a look in. And, you know, he's been brought in and out of the squad on about probably half a dozen occasions. He's shone it at Sale. Sale's scrum has improved with him there. So, you know, there are players who I think that he, he, he could look more closely at that he hasn't, Rapava Ruskin, on the loose head. You know, I mean, he's a terrific prop and has been, you know, on top of his form for the best part of two, two and a half years. So there are players out there who who should be in a position to challenge. 
And the other factor here is that the all singing, all dancing premiership suddenly doesn't feature a huge amount of grunt and scrummaging compared with old days. I mean, it's a very entertaining league to watch, but, you know, these sort of 12 tries a game sort of matches, you know, it wears a bit thin. You know, where is the, the scrum contest, the 12 6 in the mud, where you really learn about the scrummages? You know, you've also got, I mean, Dan Cole had an extremely, obviously, a, 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 a really difficult final against South Africa in 2019. He'd played very little rugby before, you know, being pulled Sucked in off in. the bench to play the full, pretty well a full 80. But, um, you know, I mean, he's still still around. You've got Marla, who's considered, and I certainly consider to be the best scrummaging loosehead uh, in the country. And, um, you know, I mean, he doesn't seem to be, you know, Jones doesn't seem to be able to persuade him to play. But, uh, you know, I mean, I think that there are solutions there, but, you know, they need to they need to make the moves now. Lewis, thinking back to when you were playing for England, obviously the 2005 through to 2011 period, you know, there were the occasional ups and downs. Were you ever part of a sort of crisis where the public was losing faith so much with either coach or team to that extent? No, what wasn't the best sort of time for England rugby at that time? We were a bit up and down. The best time was around 2011 when we'd won the Six Nations and went into the World Cup, you know, in quite a good, quite good form. It just unraveled in obviously in New Zealand, and we lost a quarter final that we shouldn't have really lost. I was I wasn't involved with England in 2008, but I think that was quite a tough time as well. I think that's when the last lost against Argentina in the Autumn International, so that was a bit of a rocky rocky period. But there was a lot of ups and downs through through throughout that time. Say that Jones is kept in. Let's go down the other hypothesis now. What's the next big change? We met. You mentioned unlocking England's backline. Does that mean? potentially a revamp of the coaching setup or potentially not the same reliance on people that have been around the setup a long time. Johnny May, Jack Noll got given lots of chances when the likes of Caden Murley, who's been on this podcast, you know, didn't get a look in despite being in fantastic form for Harlequins this year. Yeah, I think if Eddie stays on, he'll probably will, like in the past, he'll look to make some changes with his coaching group. I think the game to... They should have played against uh, South Africa at the weekend. Is a high tempo, quick game for one reason or another. England couldn't sort of get that going, whether that was the referee or whatever. But that's the game you want to be playing: is a high tempo, high ball in play type of game, not set piece game against South Africa. And I'm sure they would have spoken about that. Probably was part of their game plan, but for one reason or another, they just couldn't get that on the field. Um, showed glimpses of it when Ben Youngs come on towards the end, and they're shown patches of it again against New Zealand like late on in the game you've got to try and get that game on the field for, for longer periods of time because they can, they can do it Brendan do you think any other coach would have survived up until this point and by that I mean obviously Eddie Jones has a phenomenal World Cup pedigree and I suppose him continuing to say we keep building towards a World Cup we're building towards a World Cup be patient is buying him a few extra a few extra months, let's let's say. Do you think that is what the RFU was holding on to? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a cop-out, that excuse, really, isn't it? I mean, I, I look at it, he's, he's been in charge for seven years. Uh, and are England that much better than, you know, obviously they had a good season in 2016. He had an immediate impact. But have they even kicked on from the end of that 2016 when they 
went down to Australia and won 3-0. He's on, he's done a great deal with the RFU, isn't it? I mean, let's be honest, there must be money involved here and huge amounts. Uh, it would be extremely difficult at various stages when he's been vulnerable for the RFU to sort of extract themselves from that deal and for Eddie uh, to be given um, the boot. Quite unhealthy sometimes, these really long-term deals, but... We, we don't know what the private conversations are and exactly what the relationship is between him and, and Bill Sweeney. But you look at it and you think, yeah, I'm not sure anybody else would have survived that long. You know, this is England. We demand, the public demand, not only success, but a really positive form of rugby. We're seeing it in, you know, well, I mentioned the premiership a few minutes ago, but the product is good. Whether it's got great scrummages or not, the product is good. The England Test product is not great. It's not a team to excite you. It doesn't get you off off your seat. It doesn't really make you believe in them and give them that extra sort of um, leeway. You know, if, if it does go wrong, when you, when you're playing really great attacking rugby, you can you can put up with the occasional misfire. So uh, it's a bit of a mess to be honest. I'm not quite sure where they go from here, but I don't think they'll they'll get rid of him. I think he's here for the World Cup. Yeah, one one of the biggest aspects of this mess is this faceless panel. Who, um, yep. you know, I mean, who who is it who's who's deciding or able to divine whether Eddie's done a good job or a bad job or whatever? Okay, we've got results. The players sort of seem to swear by him. People would say, well, if you're being picked by a coach, you usually do swear by them. But um, you know, I mean, the, the idea that you've got an anonymous panel pronouncing on whether Jones should, you know, stay or go strikes me as being absurd. You know, people, if you've got experts, people have got to back their expertise and have got to be prepared to be in the public, in the public eye and say what they've got to say, you know, for public consumption. Otherwise they shouldn't be there. And, Mm. you know, the idea that Bill Sweeney, who's his line boss, Sweeney does not have the rugby knowledge to be able to assess the the intricacies of what Jones has or hasn't done. Others do, but they're nameless. It's absurd. You know, it's a ridiculous state of affairs. I should probably say as well that at the time of the recording, the RFU is conducting a review, hasn't publicly backed Eddie Jones, but hasn't publicly said the other um, the opposite. So hopefully later this week, we will get some news. Now, I want to tie into Australia versus Wales. And one candidate we didn't mention from the England perspective is Warren Gatland. He was asked in the pre-match build-up on Saturday whether he had been contacted by the WRU. And he said no. PVAC's position is about as precarious as Jones is. Nick, you giggled when he said no. Do you Why? Do you think that's dubious? I think it's very unlikely that he hasn't been sounded out in one way, shape, or form. Whether it's been an official, you know, approach is another matter. Do you think, and Lewis, I'll come to you first, do you think Gatlin should be brought in ahead of PVAC? I know, you know, we're essentially repeating the same conversation, but it's a precarious state of affairs in Welsh rugby, just as it is in English. I think he will be brought in for a short-term World Cup period. And then they'll probably look again at making... A change again after the World Cup because I'm not sure Gatlin probably wants to do it for that long, but I think they'll bring him back for a short time. Do we agree with that, guys? Yeah, I think they'll be getting a bit of the band back together. I think Rob Howley will also be asked to make himself available. Um, obviously, Sean Edwards is now tied up with Wales, with France until the next World Cup, so that that boat has sailed. But um, Wales is in in fever, isn't it? it? Something needs to be done, and steadying the ship and bringing Warren Gatlin is is the obvious thing to do. Nick. I've, I sort of, 
I mean, Wayne Pivak's situation is is a difficult one, really, because, again, in the summer, we've got two coaches. It's an identical or very similar situation. You know, we got, I mean, they didn't win a series. Wales didn't win a series in South Africa, but they um, they took South Africa close. They took a test off them and they took them close. And um, they, even under Gatland, they weren't always great in the autumn. They tend to, the tendency for them seemed to be a concentration more on the Six Nations than than on the Autumn Series. So, yeah, yeah, look, I mean, it's it's been a a, a pretty poor Autumn for them and it is an opportunity to bring that change in. Again, there's been a lot of a lot of player rotation, a lot of switches in selection, which haven't 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 helped at all. We'll discuss this case of Wales in a later episode. I don't want to keep the podcast too too depressing for the entire episode because it's all looking pretty grim at the moment. Let's lighten the mood. Yeah, let's right? talk about Ireland. <laughs> We're not going to talk about Ireland. We're going to talk about one man in particular from the Wales Australia game, who a lot of people won't know his name. Even more people who do know his name don't know how to say it. I'm going to give it my best shot. Brendan, how good was or is or could be Mark Nwanganitawasi? That's a pretty good effort, I think. I mean, I Thank can't you. pronounce it, but that sounded like what they were saying on the on the TV. He's excellent. I mean, he was brilliant against Ireland as well uh, the previous week when they lost. And he's got an interesting X fact. He's a pretty big guy. He runs really hard and straight, but he's got some good moves, some good angles. But there's a bit of an electricity about him. And things definitely happen when he's on the ball. I mean, it's only his third cap. I mean, he was quite a, a bit of a star at under-20 level in 2019. And then he struggled to get a contract, I think, for a while. But he's really coming on strong. And listen, I think the Aussies, you know, they lost three of the five matches. They could have won all of them. They they were in every single match. They were, they were putting out a second-stroke third 15 on occasions. Australia have had a pretty good autumn, and they've discovered some pretty good players. And... I think they they're going to build quite quite well next year. So look out for Australia. Yeah, yeah. especially if they uh, you know they manage to. I think that they they wheeled in Skelton for what maybe one test, maybe two. But you know the idea that they haven't you know that during the summer that they didn't bring him in was unbelievable. Really, you know you have probably or arguably the most powerful lock in the world, and uh, they haven't harnessed him which is uh, extraordinary. There also let's not forget they're in England's half of the World Cup draw and I agree with Brendan. I think that they're um they're capable of coming together and being much more than they have been over the last couple of years. Yeah. A real threat and obviously moving in the opposite direction to England you would say they're potentially moving forwards. Um yeah, Nwangani Tawasi he was I think it was nine carries 100 and something meters. Eight tackles beaten, which I, I think you'll do well to find a someone who achieved a higher number than him throughout the autumn. So very, very impressive showing from him. OK, I want a brief overview of the autumn in the form of we'll get a player of the autumn, a surprise of the autumn and a moment of the autumn. And I'm not going to come to anyone in particular. I haven't watched a lot of the other. Uh, I only watched England. I've seen a bit of Wales. So that would be a Welsh player or a... <laughs> An English player. Oh God! Which, given the discussion that's happened on, the, on this episode so far, yeah, no, it's not ideal, is it? <laughs> okay. Well, what was the moment of the matches that you saw then, Louis? A moment of the autumn was the the England New Zealand game. I think that 
that last 10 minutes or so, England did show a sort of the future of where they could go to with, with the game. Obviously, that was definitely, they were playing against 14 men at the time. But that sort of all-court type game was was obviously what we all want to see from England moving forward. So for, for me, that was quite a positive moment. My moment has to be Georgia, last three minutes against Wales. Um, I only caught bits of the match. I did catch the last 10, 15 minutes. Didn't seem to be a great match, but my God, what a, what a moment in time. What a historical win. And, you know, the Georgians worked so bloody hard and they got so much stacked against them. And it meant so much to them. Uh, it was just really, really good to watch. And I think it's quite an important moment, that one. They've been, funnily enough, they've, they've been in a little bit of a lull for three or four years, Georgia, but I think they're coming good again now. They've got some very good under-20s coming through. And I think, given the chance, they will kick on a bit now. I'd agree with you, actually. I can't change mine. That was outstanding, yeah. I think we might be, Nick, I'm going to hazard that you'll say Georgia as well. I think we might be unanimous there. No, I wasn't. No. I, wasn't. Oh. <laughs> I was going to say, look, I mean, I, I've um, I've put the boot into England, but I thought that Freddie Stewart's try against New Zealand, and I agree with what, if you want a, a sign of, of, of what they've got to reach for, they've already shown that they, they, they are capable of doing it, just not very often. But that try, you know, I don't know how many pairs of hands the ball went through the you know the precision and you know Stuart rounding off a great game by finishing in that way and he's making making a habit of it I thought was very you know that that was a, a an uplift moment for for England in an autumn which didn't have very many I thought also Curtly Aronson's try for the Springboks I just love you know I mean the 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 I wouldn't say it's a simple thing done well but just an in out that um, you know, it was classic. And from a guy who's, you know, who's been on an international pitch, you know, only a few minutes, relatively speaking, I thought it was, uh, you know, just a fantastic bit of finishing. And obviously, shades of Cheslin Colby in the 2019 yeah. World Cup. It was Absolutely. the same corner, England fly half, yeah, massive shades of it. And I guess Curtly Aronser is a good cue to introduce player of the autumn because I suspect he'll be someone's. I could be wrong, though. I, I, you know, I mean, when you're talking about finishers, what about Pano? Yeah, I think you know some of his finishings just out of this world. <laughs> you know, also the timing of it. You know, it's it sort of always seems to sort of pull the rabbit out of the hat in the last minute as well. Um, so I'd certainly put him 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 up there. I'm going to go old school, uh, and it's a player who doesn't get enough recognition. How he wasn't one of the four candidates for World Player of the Year, but I've never seen a better lock than Evan Etzebeth. He just absolutely monsters every game he plays in. He's 100% all the time. And his A game is at such a level. Mm. And I think particularly that Italy game, they were only 18-16 up, 18-16 up, 48th minute. And he came on and he played like four men. He just utterly transformed the match. They, Italy could not handle a forward like that. And then he galvanised the rest of the pack. So... As ever, he's been Mr. More than Mr. Solid, Mr. Reliable. He's been a colossus for him, and he's some player of an Yeah, and you put a combination of him behind Malherb, who's about as old school as it gets. And you've got... That's a pretty strong side of the scrum, that isn't it? You've got some combination, yeah. 
Lewis, can I trouble you for a player of the autumn? I know you probably it's a fractal equation, but yeah. I'm going to go positive on the England front. I'll go Freddie Stewart. Yeah. I just think consistently, you know, since he's been involved with England, he didn't have the greatest game at the weekend mind. He made a couple of errors, but I think consistently he's he's put his hand up. So I'll tell you, yeah, Fred Stewart is moving forward as well. A shining light in a, yeah, a less than shiny 2022. Let's put the autumn series to bed then. Thank you for doing that. And sorry for putting you guys on the spot just a little bit. Lewis Deacon, it's time for your random rugby 15. 15 quick fire questions. Shall we get yeah. going? Yeah. Nickname. Nickname, Deeks. Best rugby memory. Make him a debut for England. Most embarrassing rugby memory. I don't really have a bit of fun. You never embarrass yourself on a pitch, even if it's just a glaring knock-on in the last minute or something well, like that. In saying that, I did drop the first... In my England debut, I dropped the first kickoff. I was that nervous. It was one of them easy catches, dropped it. So, yeah, I'll tell you that. Did you play well that day in the end? Um, okay, yeah. Okay, so re- 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 recovered somewhat from that. Yeah. Pre-game tune? No music. Old school. Nice. That is old school. Post-game meal. Uh, It'd be a takeaway if we won. Best player you've played against? Johnny Wilkinson. Best player you've played with? Jordan Murphy. Oh, nice. Favourite player right now? Etzebeth. Yeah. Did you ever play against him? No, I didn't, know. Rugby idol? Uh, Martin Johnson. Favourite stadium? Millennium Stadium. Nice. Favourite gym exercise? What bike? Oh, nice. Haven't had that one yet. Nice. Occupation if rugby didn't exist? I'd work for the Matt Hampson Foundation. Superstitions? I used to... When I first started out, I had um, a pair of undershorts I used to had to wear all the time. And obviously, a long career, they worn out and they... I had to replace them but I used to have a pair of undershorts that I felt if I didn't wear them we wouldn't win the game So, but I never really had any apart from that yeah when you replaced them did you replace them with just one pair or you just gave up on the whole thing no replaced them with a like a similar pair yeah and then that became your new okay rugby law you would change I'd find a way to try and speed up the game we've seen that the shot clock may be introduced uh, is that what they're calling it, the shot clock for scrums and lineouts and things? Yeah, that'd be brilliant. I think. Yeah. I don't know how that. Yeah, I, I suppose sp- speeding it up. Um, you know, if it's your putting, you're obviously going to want it. Want to be quick if the opposition and a slow, then it'd be a penalty, and then yeah, be a good way of just speeding it up. It takes too long to restart the game. Yeah. Best thing about working in rugby? Just doing something that you love. Um, you know. I was very fortunate to come straight out of school into into rugby and do something that I loved and and continue to do so. So, obviously, you are continuing to do so, and that ties into the last little bit of the pod where I just want to talk to you about your role with the Red Roses. Thank you for doing the um, quick fire fifteen questions, by the way, very very quick fire. Uh, so we've got a little bit of extra time. Speak about how the Red Roses have been. It was August twenty one that it was announced that you came in. Yeah. Obviously, you then had the autumn where you beat the Black Ferns twice uh, pretty convincingly. And, you know, it seems like it's obviously been a hell of a ride since then. Just speak about the whole process of you coming in and how, well, how that came about and how 
generally how it's been? Well, it's something that I never never thought I would do is coaching the women's game. Obviously, I'd, I've only just started my coaching career, really, and I'd, I'd, I'd spent a few years in the Championship. I did a, a spell with England under-20s men's team, and then this opportunity came up sort of June, July sort of time last year, and I, I went for it. I decided I'd try something, something different, and um, I'm actually so glad that I did. And just what excited me was just the way where the game's going. It's a growing game. And you can see that the impact it's had over the last sort of 12 months, it's only going to get bigger. And to be a part of that is what sort of excited me. Um, along with helping them grow and be, become better players. So, yeah, so glad that I did it. I've done it so far. And reading up on when you first came in, I saw that, you came in and essentially rewrote their line out completely from minute minute one. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, well, I um, basically stripped it all back. I think um, starting things from scratch, I think, was the best way to go. Obviously, they'd, ha- they'd had some difficult times around the set-piece scrum in particular. And I just started again, just built it from the bottom up and just tried to find something to go after a particular thing and and we went after it and yeah one thing i've i've learned with the girls is they're great if you ask them to do something they'll do it 100% every time and it might be just a little thing um and they do it because they just want to get better and that's why i've really enjoyed working with them but yeah we we stripped it right back and and built it up i can't ask about the lineup without asking about the driving mall yeah. It's obviously the source of a lot of Red Rose's points has been over the course of the year and particularly the World Cup. Was that one of your first priorities? And how? what's the process of perfecting something like that and making it so powerful? Well, one of, one of the things I wanted, I wanted the the forward pack to be feared by the opposition. And, and one of the things they, they needed to hear was probably that, that more game around the set piece. You can unlock other things in the game if you if, if you get dominance in in that area. So that's what we went after. We again, like we we started from scratch. We built we built the foundations right at the bottom, and you know in the World Cup it probably came to fruition. You've seen obviously that it was the super strength of the team. It probably at times starved the rest of the team, if I'm honest, and. Moving forward, we need a bit like the men's team. We need to find a more balance in our game because there's some outstanding backs in the girls' game. You know, your Abby Dow's on the wing that we need to get the ball to, and, and at times we 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 did that. But I'd say we probably didn't do it enough. But to win a World Cup, you you have to you do have to have a balanced game, but you also have to do what your strengths are. Um, and that's why we really went after that because it was a super strength of the team at the time. When you were out in New Zealand, obviously, well, you may know that a, a, a lot of the talk around the Red Roses was that driving more and potentially an over-reliance on it. Did you yeah. read those sorts of things? And, you know, do you no. then take, you don't you don't read it? No, because we just did what we felt was right for that particular game. So, like, Fiji, the first game we had, you know, Fiji are so unpredictable. They were huge. Um, they were very athletic. They play that sort of sevens branded type of game. And we got 
we got stuck into a bit of a trap of trying to play them at that type of game and we were never going to come out on top playing that game against them. So what we did is at half time we went back to what we said was our strength. So we went set piece, built the game from set piece. So we we drove from a lineup, but we also then played away from that and we balanced it up and we scored some some great tries. Australia was like the worst conditions that I think the girls had ever played in. So we played the played the conditions as you would set piece game, um, and then that's when all the criticism started coming out. I think. But we were only doing what we we felt was right for those particular games. Canada, for example, in in this in the um, semi final, we struggled to get absolute dominance in set piece. It was a bit more evenly matched, and the game probably needed us to open up a little bit, but a bit more. But we didn't. We almost tried to not lose the game rather than going trying to win it. Um, so it wasn't a particularly great performance from us in, in that semi final, but. We got the job done in the end. Do you think that the women's game is obviously the standard is getting higher and higher? There's no questioning that. And as more teams go professional, which will no doubt happen in the next four years, the next World Cup cycle, you would presume that defences will become tighter physically. Teams will be able to match one another a little bit more when they have a bit of, uh, you know, access to more strength and conditioning coaches. You can just spend more time priming yourself in that way game will be less open less broken play do you think the game will then become more set piece oriented hope not because i think that's probably what's exciting around about the women's game is there's more opportunities there because it is a more open game but yeah i do agree i think the more professional like some of these teams have only been professional for the last 12 months or so like even we've been three years so we're quite we're a bit ahead of everybody else but when they start to catch up and to start working on the athletic development and the fitness side of things and the physical side of it. And then technically, because they're spending a bit more time together, the set pieces will become a lot stronger and the competition around that will become, you know, greater. So the game's going to grow and it potentially would go a bit more set piece competition based. Obviously you do need a set piece to, for any team to function. So, um, at the moment, that's where we've been particularly strong in the last 12 months I've been involved. And France France previously have, have been really strong around the set piece as well. So, yeah, that's where the game potentially will go. Do you see yourself making it through that next World Cup cycle? Do you want to? Yeah, I think so. I, I'm, like I said, I was excited where the game's going. And I've been a home World Cup in well, it's under three years now. It's like two years, 11 months. Yeah, or so. that's so true. So it's not that long. Uh, and, you know, having a final at Twickenham and hopefully a sellout of 80,000 for the women's game, I think that would be incredible. So that that excites me. And I've always thought that there's so much growth um, still to come. Like a lot of the time I say to the players, we're, we're only scratching the surface. We're not really got to where we want to be yet or anywhere near our potential. So, um, again, that's that's something that excites me too. Let's look at that final, because uh, we haven't done that yet on the Rugby Paper podcast. Uh, to Well, we have, but not to a massive, massive extent, and certainly not with someone who was there that day. I'm going to ask a slightly cheeky question, first of all, and, one, and we've spoken about this before we, when we had, uh, I think it was Rocky Clark and Sadia Kabea, that episode. Simon Middleton had said that the Red Roses were coming in second favourites. Did you believe that the Red Roses were coming in second favourites? 
yeah, I think the final showed how difficult it is to win. Certainly in a in the host nation's country with 45, 50 odd thousand people, most of them supporting the other team or the home team. So, and they 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 had a a very unpredictable style of game that that made the final a real 50-50. And I think when, you know, obviously what happened with a, a red card puts the odds even more against you. So going into it, we knew final can go either way just because you're the number one team in the world and you're unbeaten by 30, 30 odd games doesn't mean that you, you're just going to go in and walk it. So, yeah, we, we generally did believe like in in, in camp, we, we, we thought they would be favourites. Definitely. How was the team afterwards? Good it because that's you know we 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 knew it'd be the ultimate challenge. Like I say, around they were the holders, they're the host country. Nobody wanted us to win, so to achieve achieve you know that and go on and win it would have been incredible. And the girls knew that. Just gutted, but just couldn't see it through. Yeah, um, and that's what keeps going through my head is the what ifs and could have, should have, and all those sort of things. And that's probably, you know, why coaching is really difficult at times because you, you you always feel that you could have done things slightly a little bit different or, or a bit better. Yeah. Well, obviously, I hope that as a coach, you're also able to focus on the fact that the Red Roses made it to another World Cup final and what you've managed to build over the past year and a bit. Yeah, wishing you every success in terms of taking the Red Roses forward and hopefully towards the next World Cup. But yeah, huge congratulations. And it was so great watching all of you back home. Yeah, Guys, just before we wrap up, Brendan, by request, you wanted to speak a little bit about Paddy Main. And uh, a lot Rogue of people Heroes. might not know who Paddy, Paddy Main is. It's Rogue oh, Heroes. shame on you, Ollie, but you're, you're much too young. I didn't I, No, I, I knew who he was. I, well, the, the Sunday evening, I, I dare say a lot of listeners have clocked it. Um, and it's, it's really good fun really well done it's rogue heroes the, the origins of the sas now it's not strictly speaking all historically true although a lot of the incidents as they say in their blurb certainly have a basis in truth but what has struck me is they've got to the end of the series uh which is on sunday without mentioning that one of the two major characters paddy blair main was this legendary rugby figure and it's also very important, his makeup. I mean, this was the greatest killing machine in World War II. He was a phenomenal soldier. He was, like, efficient. Uh, he was fiery. He was controlled. Uh, he was absolutely focused on the task, everything you would expect from an elite sportsman. And although he undoubtedly enjoyed a drink um, on occasions, he spent 99% of his time sober and on the case, which they've slightly tilted in the series. They make him to be a bit of a, a wild boy, uh, drunken romantic uh, a lot of the time he was actually a utterly professional soldier but just to tell you the sort of rugby player he was in, in 1938 at the age of 23 he toured the 38 lions uh now south africa were effectively the strongest team in the world they, they'd beaten new zealand in new zealand the previous summer and it was a pretty weak lions pack and he was i wouldn't say he was a one-man pack but he was the hard man he played in 20 of the 23 matches on tour uh, he was rated by the box there as the greatest forward they'd ever seen there. He was a hell of a rugby player. And, of course, his career ended there at the age of 23. War was declared the next year. But, you know, he took that sort of, 
I think the the Lions scenario transfers really well into the SAS, and you've got to watch the series to understand why. It's a, it's a band of brothers on tour. He gets all that. That explains him a lot. But also, he's a, he's a cold, efficient killer. He, you know, he'd been there on a weekly basis, slugging it out with eight box forwards on tour uh, as the hard man of the Lions pack. So they just they haven't quite got that that series. They didn't tap in to why this guy um, was who he was. It's more around the, the SAS. Totally around. Right. This is the yeah, formation of the SAS the in North piece. Africa, 1941, which was done by David Sterling, who, who uh, Maine has a very difficult relationship with. But Maine took over because Sterling got taken cat, uh, prisoner, spent the rest of the war in Colditz. So Maine then forged the SAS in his in his mould, you know, uh, for the next three and a half years until the end of hostilities. And it just struck me as very odd that they have this series and they haven't at any time mentioned what a sort of legendary rugby player he was at the time because it's kind of integral to the character they missed the connection they they they've got a um a snippet of about 10 seconds of them kicking something that looks more like a football than a rugby ball around because they get the french mercenaries coming don't they They have a france v they they have like yeah sort of 10 second desert storm match and that's the only rugby connection i've seen so far which just struck me as very odd yeah, they do, they do outline who Paddy Main is, though, presumably. Not really, no, unless oh, really? I've missed it. There's, there's no sort of backstory. No, not uh, from he's the just this side. drunken Irish lad who's always in jail, having beaten people up. <laughs> this guy, David Sterling, says, I'll, I'll have some of that. I want him on my side when he forms the SAS. But it's much more complicated and nuanced than that. He was a, a stunning rugby player and an incredibly efficient, organised, ruthless bloke, you know, who occasionally enjoyed a drink. And beat a few people up, but they got that bit right, but they haven't got the rest of it. Fascinating. Well, are episodes released on Sundays, or am I? Uh, well, it's on. Yeah. It's, it ends on Sunday, but it's all on iPlayer. Uh, okay. And I'm just, I haven't just slagged off, off a little bit. Jack Connell, the guy who plays him, the big problem. He's only half the size that Paddy Blaine, Paddy Blair was, uh, but he actually gets the sort of Irishness, the Protestant Ulsterman Irish. He gets that pretty well. He just hasn't got the the size of a bloke who took on the Springboks. Right, so you need someone someone bigger in casting. Liam idea. Neeson in the old days would have done it. He would have been uh, first. <laughs> How tall is Liam Neeson? I don't even know. Uh, well, he's, he's bigger than Jack Connell, anyway. Pretty big. Okay, all right. Well, if anyone fancy a bit of weekend viewing then, Rogue Heroes on iPlayer. There we go. A little, little plug to round things off. Thank you for that, Brendan. We'll wrap up there, guys. A bit of a roller coaster of an episode and a roller coaster of emotions. Lewis, thank you so much for joining us. And again, huge well done on New Zealand. And I hope you can round off the year peacefully as well, as it's probably been a really, really hectic few months. And looking forward to the Women's Six Nations, which I believe will start, is it end of March? I believe so, yeah. End of March. Well, like you say, you're probably not hoping not to think about that. So Merry Christmas, we'll say. Cheers, guys. As always, the Rugby Paper is available in stores on Sundays or you can get it delivered to you through our digital subscription. We will see you next week for episode 43.